Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back here with all of you today. I was telling Elaine Simpson before, I feel like an itinerant minister these days, flying around Hudson Valley from church to church, and it is always a great joy to be back here and to enjoy the richness that is this service together. Over the next couple weeks, I'll be preaching here this morning, and then again on the 31st, I'm going to hit two really, really famous psalms. Psalm 51 this week, and in a couple weeks, Psalm 90. So our text this morning is Psalm 51. And that psalm, it's certainly on the Mount Rushmore of most well-known psalms. Parts of Psalm 51 have been used by the church liturgically, and used by this particular church, church liturgically, for thousands of years. These lines that you just heard Elder Cheng Fong read before, blot out my transgressions. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. We know those lines. We're familiar with those lines. Even if some some of us might not be able to immediately point out and say, yes, Psalm 51. We should be able to do that. But even if we can't, we know those lines. The great Italian poet Dante, author of the Divine Comedy, in the comedy he calls David the singer of the Holy Spirit. David is the singer of the Holy Spirit. But when the Holy Spirit sings, he unveils, he reveals, he uncovers, and the Holy Spirit shows us who we are when he is singing. And because of that, this psalm of David, the singer of the Holy Spirit, it's caustic. And it is biting in its unguarded and sort of raw self-analysis. In the self-reflection and self-examination found here, it's deep and gritty. And because of that, this text, Psalm 51, it has often been used by the church to kick off the season of self-repentance that is the season of Lent. This is often an Ash Wednesday text because that is the season when we dig deep and try to understand who we are ourselves. Honest self-reflection is something that is hard to do. Difficult indeed. Understanding who we are in our own nature is one of the most difficult tasks that you can ever undertake. Some of you might be familiar with the the writer Janet Malcolm. She was a, a wonderful journalist She just passed this summer, uh, June of this year, she passed away. And she wrote these words in response to talking about our ability for self-reflection. She writes, we are perpetually smoothing and rearranging reality to conform to our wishes. We lie to others and to ourselves constantly, unthinkingly. When, on occasion, and not by dint of our own efforts... But under the pressure of external events, we are finally forced to see things as they are. We are like naked people in a storm. We don't like to see ourselves up close as we are. Naked, raw, stripped of all of our masks, like King Lear out on the heath in the driving storm. You ever take your camera out to take a picture of your children or to take a picture of anything? and the camera happens to be flipped in reverse, and you get smacked with the image of your own face, up real close and personal, and you have that moment, you're like, oh, man, that's what I look like? 
We don't like to see that. Now, some of you more beautiful people might not have a problem with that. But when you're someone like me, you're like, oh, you can see yourself from different angles than that. We don't like that. But that's what David is going to do here in Psalm 51. He takes the camera and he flips it around right on himself. And he gives an unflinching self-analysis. David is going to stare into the nastiness that is the self. And while doing so, he will take full responsibility for everything that he sees. Absolute responsibility. David in this psalm and throughout the rest of the psalms, he makes no excuses for his actions. He makes no excuses for his inactions, for his sins. David never says here, you know what? I was just doing my job. You know, all the others did it. Some actually did it much worse than me. He never says, my mom didn't love me. You know, my dad hit me when I was a child. My teachers were really cruel. They're not like the nice, kind teachers you have nowadays. He never says, the devil made me do it. You know, I felt neglected. I was unloved. I was just, just in a rough state of mind. Waters have been a little rocky lately. No, none of that is found here at all. Now, in this type of authentic, broken self-scrutiny, we see something that is desperately lacking in the world today, right? We do not see people that have the ability for self-scrutiny, for self-analysis. And in the authenticity in this psalm, we see in David this sort of remarkable combination, this combination of complete penitence, complete self-awareness, and yet un conquerable, unshakable confidence. He's completely penitent and yet completely confident at the same time. And the two things don't seem to be contradictions for him. So this morning, I'd like to examine this masterpiece of a text under two headings. First, purgation, and then the outpouring of the Spirit. Purgation and the outpouring of the Spirit. So we don't have a traditional three-point sermon, but we do have the alliteration still, so we're halfway there. Purgation and the outpouring of the Spirit. So first, purgation. Our psalm starts with these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. So David begins this psalm by beseeching the Lord for mercy because of his many Many transgressions. And the transgressions of David, as you and I know, they were great. These are far beyond run-of-the-mill sins. These are not run-of-the-mill trespasses. Rather, David's sins are monumental in their wickedness. And these are the sins of David, the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. The David, who when we first meet him, We see him as this vibrant, dependable, young shepherd. This is a David who boldly steps up as a man-child to fight Goliath. And he touts his resume. He doesn't just fight Goliath. He says, this is why I'm the man for the job. Listen to these words from 1 Samuel, David touting his own resume. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and they took a lamb from the flock... I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, 
And this uncircumcised Philistine, he shall be just like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. That's, that's quite a resume right there, right? It's a good cover letter. So this David, the David who has fought off lions and bears, the David who has cut off the head of the serpent that was Goliath, the one who had performed the duties of the good shepherd admirably, by the time we get to him here, he has been marred by iniquities. And David has exchanged his role as shepherd for that of the very lion and bear that he once defended Israel from. The one who was supposed to be defending the, key, the kingdom, defending the people, he's become the bear. He's been preying on the weak. He has been using and abusing his power. The transgressions of David, the failed shepherd, as with many transgressions, they were complicated. The sins of David were many faceted. And in many cases, they were far reaching. The effects of his sins, boom. They spread out throughout the whole kingdom. His sins included adultery, sleeping with Bathsheba, treachery, underhanded chicanery, and cruelty. David, he betrays not just Uriah, sending an innocent man to the front lines, sending a man to his inevitable death, but he betrayed Bathsheba's purity, polluting her with infidelity. But his sins don't stop there. David's sins are not just against Uriah and not just against Bathsheba. But remember, David has to send the whole army out to the front lines along with Uriah. Which means he has sinned against the kingdom, the safety and the sanctity of the kingdom, putting all of Israel in jeopardy. His sins were an assault on God's kingdom. I think too often, you and I, in regards to our own sin, we too often take a sort of libertarian approach. We have this modern libertarian approach to our own sin. An approach which in this regard is both politically and morally untenable. Frankly, the modern libertarian approach is philosophically nonsensical. The modern libertarian approach is to say something like this. Well, hey, you know, you and I, we're all sort of these autonomous, self-controlling individuals. And the things that I do in private, well, they only affect me. And they only affect other consenting adults. And for that reason, they should be left unregulated. Left alone to my own little sphere of the world. Left alone to my own little nook. Because my sins, my private business, only affects me. Well, I hate to break it to you guys. But you are not autonomous. You are not isolated. And you are not self-contained spheres of being. You, this is for all people but especially for the church. You need to realize you are a covenantal creature. You are not an individual I. There is no individual I that exists. You people of the church are baptized into a living, breathing body that you are deeply and intricately connected to. So the things that you do, the sins that you commit in private, they are never isolated sins only. And I think we all kind of get this to some level. Right? Your sins affect you, but they affect your spouse, do they not? They affect your children. And like polluted water, they trickle into the church, and they besmirch the good name of Christ. And this is especially true for you and I, 
For us who have received the fullness of the great revelation of God in Christ. We have received the light. And with that great gift comes great responsibility. And great potentiality for our sins to do enormous damage. And hence, as the author of Hebrews will remind us over and over again, be punished by the severest of sanctions. We are to be beacons of light in a fallen world. Light for the blind. And it's a monstrous wickedness to sin against the light. Choosing darkness when we have been given light. Choosing to eat scorpions and snakes when our Father gives us abundant bread from heaven. And yet we say, no, no, we'll eat the scorpions. Give me that snake. So David, he sinned in a large way. And thus he begins this psalm by begging for mercy. Using these words, according to the multitude of your compassions. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, God. That's the language David uses. Right? David realizes he needs a really big God. Because he has sinned in a really big way. And then finally, after much soul searching, David can say, as he does in verse 3, that he knows his transgressions. And his sins are ever before him. He knows his transgressions. His sins are ever before him. This is a man who doesn't kind of know his sin. His sins haven't sort of slipped into the background of his imagination. But they're right up front. They're right under his nose. David's tortured soul has been wrestling with these sins. And David realizes, this is an opponent that I cannot beat. I cannot best this opponent. He knows his sins. And to know your sins is to be sickened by the grotesque nature of them. To know your sins is to be sickened with the smell of your own filth. And to have a deep desire to have it eliminated. To have it cleansed. If you know your sins, you're not satisfied sitting in them. You're aware of them and you want it removed. And yet David realizes he's got no ability to do this on his own. Not only is he ill-equipped to defend the kingdom. David's supposed to be defending the kingdom of God. He can't even shepherd his own heart. He can't keep his own heart in check. And yet he's supposed to be shepherding God's flock. He can't tame his own desires. And yet he's supposed to be leading the nations. So with a broken, absolutely broken, and contrite heart, with humility of spirit, with absolute meekness, he asked the the Lord to do the work for him. He asked the Lord to eliminate the sin for him. He knows he needs mercy. He needs grace. He knows he needs the great scrubber of souls. There's this writer of fiction who I love, a man by the name of Dennis Johnson, whom I've mentioned from the pulpit once before, which now puts me in the Presbyterian pastor's Guinness Book of World Records for most mentions of Dennis Johnson in a sermon. Two. I have the record. I have the documentation. And Johnson, who I've mentioned before, he's uh, probably my favorite writer of fiction. And he often writes of severe addiction, depression, anxiety, and those who have been abused. 
He has a short story, which I absolutely love, called The Starlight on Idaho. The Starlight on Idaho. And that story consists of a series of these letters written from a man in drug rehab. And this man is writing letters, in his words, to 15 or 16 people who have left hooks in his belly with lines leading back to their hands. So he's in drug rehab, and he's going to write letters, 15 or 16 different people who have got their hooks inside him. And they have lines that lead back to their hands. These are people who have left an impact on this man's psyche. Some good, some bad. And in his last letter, his final letter, you can see that this drug addict, he stopped trying to fix himself. A task that he knows is too big for him to handle. And he writes these words. I'm lying in jail, and that cell is sucking the drugs and the fight and the soul right out of me and giving it to God. And God is squeezing it in his fingers, man. Every last fiber of my soul in the almighty grip of truth. And the truth is that everything I've done, every thought I've thought, every moment I've lived is garbage turned to dust and dust blown away. God, I said, forget it. I'm not even going to pray. Squeeze my guts till you get tired. That's all I want now. Because at least it's real. It's true. It's got something to do with you. So then I think I died. I think I died in jail. My life itself just left me. And who you see before you now is someone else. So I wandered like a ghost through the court system. And I came out with a sentence of 10 years. Did seven, one day at a time. Prayed every day and every night, but only one prayer. Squeeze till you get tired, Lord. Kill me. Lord, I don't care as long as it's you who kill me. Just got out of Pelican Bay prison eight days ago. And rehab, it's part of my parole. And I have nothing to show for 36 years on this earth. Except that God is closer to me than my next breath. And that's all I'll ever need or want. David here, he is broken. And he wants God to squeeze him, to cleanse him. He wants a deep scrubbing. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I mean, look at verse 7. David is wailing. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, asking to be purged with hyssop, that's a reference to the Levitical law code. And it's a particular reference to the Levitical law code on how you deal with a leper. You were to purge the lepers with hyssop. You see, David, he does not have that libertarian conception of sin. His sin is not private. It's something that makes him contagious, like leprosy. His sin will and has befouled all those he has come in contact with. Right? So David sees himself as a leper. One who can't come into contact with others unless he defile them. And most importantly, he can't come into contact with God. A God who is pure and holy. And because everything is God's, David can say those words, it is against you and you only that I have sinned. 
God is a consuming fire. And David's transgressions, they've made him into gasoline. Unable to approach the presence of God lest he combust. So what does the leprous David do? The leprous David realizes he does not need a gentle washing. David is no Pelagian. If you remember the the early heretic that St. Augustine had to battle with so much. David is no Pelagian. Thinking that he has some sort of ability to achieve perfection or even begin to wash himself without a multitude and outpouring of grace. He knows he needs grace. I think when it comes to you and I, when it comes to our sins, I feel like most of us are like Lady Macbeth. David here, he's much more like Macbeth himself. If you remember back in that great Shakespearean tragedy, after the brutal murders of King Duncan and the guards, right, Macbeth and his wife, Lady Macbeth, they kill the king, they kill the guards, there's blood dripping off their daggers. And in this chilling scene, Lady Macbeth, who's just like us, she says these words, a little water clears us of this deed. That's it. Just a gentle scrubbing and I'll be good as new. Just a little water cleanses us of this deed. Macbeth, like David here in Psalm 51, he has quite a different response. This is what Macbeth says. Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from my hands? No, this my hands will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green ones red. Macbeth, sensing the gravity of his sins, he realizes that all the oceans in the world, they wouldn't be capable of cleansing him. Rather, he would incarnadine, or he would turn red all the seas of the world with his blood, with his guilt, with his sins, with his trespasses. David sins here. They could incarnadine all the oceans of the world. For he has sinned against an infinite God. So far from being a Pelagian, we could say that David is an Augustinian. Or more fittingly, Augustine is a Davidian. I don't think we use that term often, but we could say Augustine is a Davidian or David is an Augustinian here. He realizes that it's not just his individual sins that have put him in this position. But David, having self-reflected, realizes that he, at his very core, is a creature of sin. That's who he is. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In sin, my mother conceived me. David's not a bastard child. That's not what's going on here. He's just aware that at his very core, he's a creature of sin. And if in sin, his mother conceived him, then the elimination of sin must involve nothing short of a rebirth. He needs a new birth. After all, flesh gives birth to only flesh. The corruptible can only give birth to the corruptible. But it is only the spirit that can give birth to the spirit. So David... He needs rebirth. He needs the outpouring of the Spirit. And that brings us to our second point. The outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit. So David, he's been praying for pardon. He's been praying for washing. For cleansing. 
And he now prays for the grace of the spirit of God that he forfeited or at least should have forfeited. He prays for the spirit to be restored to him. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he writes those most famous words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Notice how he asked God not to fix his heart. He doesn't say, Lord, come in and mend my heart. Could you fix my heart? He uses the word create. Create in me a clean heart. True creation, just like the creation account in Genesis, it's an act ex nihilo. It's an act out of nothing. Creation is not a rearranging of the parts. Creation isn't a buffing off of the rough edges of your heart. The creation account in Genesis is a miracle. And David here, he's asking for something miraculous. He's asking for a miracle, an incredible miracle. Something that will allow him to be born not of the flesh, but somehow to be born of the spirit. You see, David doesn't want the spirit of the age, but he's asking for the spirit of God. And the spirit of God is God. To ask for the spirit is to ask for shalom, for peace. It's to ask for Emmanuel, for God to be with us. It's to ask to be a new creation. It's to ask to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's to ask to be the very dwelling place of God. Imagine that. Imagine a man who has committed adultery, sent a man to the front lines to be killed, put the entire safety and sanctity of the kingdom at risk, and then says, God, let me be your dwelling place. That's what David's asking for here. You know, the miracle of creation is nothing compared to the miracle of God dwelling in man. Creation's miraculous, sure. But how much more miraculous is man being made the habitation of God? For as Paul says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Those words can just wash by us sometimes. That's far more miraculous than creation. David continues in verse 11, writing, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The word cast there, our English word, doesn't really do it justice. But it is a very, very strong verb in the Hebrew. Meaning, to hurl away from. Cast me not away from your presence. You see, to be hurled away from God, who is the source of goodness, who is goodness himself, is to be cast fully into the privation of the good. That is, it's to be cast into evil. It's to be cast into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast me not away from your presence. But here is where the gospel is found. Here is where the gospel is found on full and complete display. This is where mercy, right in the middle of this, takes center stage. Remember David. He starts this psalm with the knowledge of grace. The knowledge of mercy. A knowledge for David that even precedes his own confession. If you read the psalm from the beginning, he's got a knowledge of grace and mercy even before he's confessed. The psalm's first words are, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
according to your abundant mercy. And here's what mercy does. Those born of the Spirit, those that have died to the self and taken on Christ, they will not be cast away from the presence of God. But rather, God in Christ, he casts, he hurls your sins as far as the east is from the west away from you. He propels your sins so far away from you, they have nothing to do with you anymore. God does not take his spirit from you. Nor does he take it away from David. You remember, the spirit had been taken away from David's predecessor, from Saul. Saul, the illegitimate shepherd. The spirit was taken from Saul, and what happens? He's troubled. He's deeply disturbed. He has no order, no harmony, no proportion in his soul. He was born of the flesh, and the spirit was taken from him. And so he descended into madness. He descended into musiclessness. He descended into joylessness. But David, and you and I, we are born of the Spirit, and we are recreated. We are restored. And as restored creatures, we are made creatures of pure joy because of the salvation mercifully and graciously purchased for us. We who should be dead in our trespasses. Those of us who have incarnadined the entire cosmos with our sins, we're creatures of pure mercy. Creatures filled with the spirit of the triune God. The spirit that fills the highest heavens indwells all those that are in Christ and somehow makes us temples of the living God. It makes us new creations. It makes dead men alive. You remember that story from Dennis Johnson I just quoted before. This is how Johnson ends that story. This is the last paragraph of the last letter from that recovering addict who had prayed that God would just squeeze him. He writes these words. More than once, I've woken up with a medical professional saying, you should be dead. That's what it's going to say on my gravestone. I should be dead. Your brother in Christ, Cass. That's the gospel right there. Every Christian's tombstone across this blood-soaked planet could have those words slapped right on them, plastered across your tombstone. I should be dead. But God in his infinite mercy, he did not cast you away, but rather he cast your sins. He cast your treachery. He cast your filth on his own son. And Jesus was squeezed by God on the cross. And he was laid in the tomb. And you, you people, who are united to that Jesus, you were laid in that tomb as well. And on that universal tombstone, that was the rock that was rolled in front of Christ's tomb, could have been placed mankind's comprehensive universal epitaph. Right on that rock should have been placed, we should be dead. We should be dead. But he is risen. Amen.